U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the one, the only, the bearded, the Kristoff. Hey, check out my beard. I am. Hey, everybody. Uh, good to sock to you again. Sock it to him. I-, I could sock it to him, but I'll just talk to them. It sounded like you said sock to them. Well, I was going to say see you again, but this is an audio medium, so that would make zero sense. So I had to think about the action I would take with them, with you listeners, while holding the sound, and that's what came out. So you chose violence. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we are recovering the American Civil War. The we we are in the lower seaboard theater of the American Civil War, and we have three more battles to go through before moving on to the Trans Mississippi Theater. So let's see if we can get through all three of them day. But our neck, we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff. So I don't know if we're going to get through because we're going to be talking about new orleans the last two are just short so if we can get through new orleans we're golden all right so are you ready to get underway oh absolutely sir all right so as i just teased we're going to talk about the capture of new orleans Hmm. or if you're live in new orleans nolens so this happened between April 25th and May 1st in 1862. And this was a very important event for the Union. So, so the uh, the history of New Orleans actually contracts significantly with the histories of the other cities that became part of the Confederate States of America. Because it was founded by the French and it was owned by Spain for a little bit. So it had a more cosmopolitan culture and diverse population uh, only 13 percent of the population in 1810 was anglo so according to the census at that time the population was made up of mostly french-speaking refugees from the haitian revolution and the french and indian war and there was also some French and Spanish Carolais who smuggled in some slaves. Uh, New Orleans also benefited by the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they had international trade and a great geographical position because it was positioned by the mouth of the Mississippi, which you know drained most of the North American continent. Still does. Oh, yeah. So this made New Orleans one of the most significant transportation hubs in the United States at that time. Because there was no rail system. There was no road system. There was waterways. Yeah, it's hard to think about that sometimes. I, I guess the modern person in America would benefit greatly from the the rail system, but even more so the interstate highway system and... A lot of the infrastructure that's been put in place, but just trying to go back almost 200 years or 150 years and see what it was like then. Yeah, that was a very different uh, ball of wax. 
And it was even more different for the invention of the like the steamboat and the uh, cotton gin, things like that. Because when you're coming downstream in the Mississippi and you don't have a steamboat, you're using things like uh, keel boats. And so guess what you're not going to be able to do on the Mississippi after you unload down in New Orleans? I'm guessing go back up the Mississippi. Right. So until steamboats were invented, who had enough power to move upstream, they would bring their stuff down into New Orleans and then walk back. Whoa. And they're going to, like, Ohio and Illinois. I'm guessing they left their boat in New Orleans. It's probably some uh, floating graveyard of keelboats that just got left there. No, they would break them up for lumber. Oh, yeah, that's true. Or sell them off. You know, whatever they could do the uh, for to get the most money. That's true. It is a cosmopolitan commercial hub, so that is what they would do. There is a formative event in the early history of New Orleans, and that is the Battle of New Orleans. This was fought after the end of the War of 1812, but it would enhance the political career of Andrew Jackson, who would found the Democratic Party, if you know your history. Did you know that? I did know that, as a matter of fact. It is associated with the War of 1812, but the surrender wasn't communicated to New Orleans until after the battle had been fought. So technically it was after, but they thought it was part of the War of 1812. Somebody listened to the podcast on the... uh... 1812. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So so who uh who also along with Andrew Jackson uh found the Democratic Party? Oh. I cannot recall. Starts with an M. Miles Mortimer. Martin Van Buren? There you go. Yes, that's the one. Very very close. Very close to Miles. Thanks. I here's the secret I was guessing. So Jackson would become the first of America's imperial presidents. And they the movement that they started was called the Jacksonian Democracy. This new direction in politics would have a huge influence on the development of New Orleans and really the American Southwest. One of these was the development and construction of Fort Jackson, Louisiana. This was a star fort, and it was named after President Andrew Jackson. This fortress was intended to support Fort St. Philip, and the the bar there make sure that nobody could invade the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, that makes sense. You want to make sure you protect one of your most important cities. And I'm sure he knows that very well, having defended it himself. Mm Mm-hmm. So by 1860, the city of New Orleans was really very, very economically, militarily, and politically a huge position of power. The Mexican-American War and the Texas annexation had made New Orleans even more of a springboard for expansion. Because, I mean, Louisiana is right there next to Texas. Oh, yeah. The California Gold Rush 
would actually contribute to the local wealth of Louisiana as well and New Orleans. That is something I would not have connected. I mean, they seem far enough apart that I thought maybe the the trail to California would have gone maybe through like a St. Louis or something. That's really interesting. Well, remember, very little roads. Wintertime, north, very, very cold, snowy, hazardous conditions. South during the wintertime, not so much. That's true. I've played the Oregon Trail, and my family did freeze to death. Before they died of dysentery. It was a it was a what you call a race condition. They were competing for to see who would do them in. Mmm. So the the, the the frozen won by like two minutes? Uh yes. I was dissatisfied, needless to say, with my progress oh. to Oregon. But yeah, don't go to Oregon. That's the lesson I've learned. Oregon listeners, ignore what he just said. We love you. Oh, I'm sure they don't okay. want any new folks there. They're probably content. With their dysentery? Well, no, you get it on the way. So, like, you know, Idaho. Mm, let's reconsider. Well, uh, to get back on topic of New Orleans, <laughs> the uh, telegraph arrived in 1848, hmm. and the completion of the New Orleans, Jackson, and Great Northern Railroad this was a stretch between Orleans and Canton, about 200 miles. This would add just one more aspect to the transportation going into New Orleans, just making them a hub. So that brings us to 1860. Make this made New Orleans one of the most one of the greatest ports in the world, really. They had 33 different steamship lines. Wow. And Trade going through there was worth $500 million. That's incredible. And the population, it not only outnumbered any other city in the South, it was larger than the combination of the four largest cities with an estimated population of 168,675. That's a pretty good estimate. That's huge. That is very big for this time for sure. The election of Lincoln would inspire Thomas Overton Moore, who was the governor in Louisiana, and he was a secessionist. He uh, made an effort to make New Orleans a free city or a, you know, saying, we are neutral. We are Sweden. You can't do nothing here. Do you mean Switzerland? Sweden? Sure. They take sides. I don't know if you know that. I mean... So I've heard. Anyway, I appreciate that New Orleans is trying to stay out of things. That that seems more in line with their, I guess, background and ethos. Yes, they, they wanted to stay out of it. So he uh, organized a effective and discreet movement uh, that voted Louisiana out of the Union. This was a movement that only represented about 5% of the citizens of Louisiana. Hmm. So, you know, they're playing modern politics. We don't care what the people want. This is what I want, so this is what's going to happen. Right. He also ordered the Louisiana militia to seize the federal arsenal at Baton Rouge and the federal forts, Fort Jackson, Fort St. Philip, and Fort Pike, which, you know, guarded the entrance to Lake 
Pontchartrain, the New Orleans barracks south of the city, and Fort Mancom, which guarded the chief mentor. Those are all very strategic moves. Mm-hmm. And the, all these moves were ordered before the session or succession convention. So they're real tra- trailblazers here in a way. Yeah, they are. What happens next? Well, what happens next is this. Uh, so military companies are now forming all over Louisiana, which means that the convention itself was pretty much anticlimactic. Vote, they voted Louisiana out of the Union 113 to 17. And the outbreak of hostilities at Fort Sumter would lead to the story of New Orleans E. Civil of War. So part of the Winfield Scott's Anaconda plan. You remember that? Vaguely. I've slept since then, so... It called for the division of the Confederacy by seizing control of... Yeah, sorry, still not familiar. I know it should be right at the tip of my tongue. Mississippi River. River. Yes, okay. There you go. That's right. Great job. Thanks. I knew I, uh, if I thought about it hard enough, I'd get there. So one of the first steps in this operation is a Union blockade. And after it's established, there's a Confederate naval counterattack to try to drive them off. This resulted in the Battle of Head of Passes. And, of course, the Union then counter-moves, entering the mouth of the Mississippi River, and they go to New Orleans and capture the city, closing off the mouth of the Mississippi to the rebel ships. In the middle of January of 1862, Flag Officer Farragut undertook this this, uh, mission with the West Gulf Blockading Squadron. And, of course, the way was open except for the two forts that we talked about last time. Right. Jackson and St. Philip. So, if you want to know more about that battle, go listen to last episode because there's no reason to get back into it now. And, yes, that means you too, Christoph. I heard it. I know what happened. Okay, good. I think. Yes. Let's continue. We're we're belaboring the point. I can see this is making you uncomfortable. I'm just kidding. That brings us to right after we left off with last week. So Major General Mansfield Lovell, who was commander of Department 1 in Louisiana, was left only one option after the Navy broke through the Confederate Ring of Fortifications and defense vessels, which guarded the lower Mississippi. And that was just to get the hell out of there. The inner ring of fortifications at uh, Chalmette was only intended to resist infantry. And so they didn't have very many of their gun batteries aimed at the river. Most of the artillery, ammunition, troops, and vessels were committed to the Jackson-St. Philip position. And, you know, that means once that line was destroyed, all that remained were 3,000 militia armed with shotguns. Shotguns. And sundry military supplies, as they were described. So not much. No, not at all. The city itself was in a poor position to defend against a hostile fleet. The high water outside the levees 
which means that the Union ships were elevated above the city. And that means they're able to fire down onto the buildings. They actually have the high ground with ships. Yeah, that's rare. I think New Orleans yeah. may be the only place that that has happened. Yeah. And uh, any break in the levees would have flooded most of the city, just, just destroying it in about a day. Wow. So Lovell loads his troop and supplies aboard the New Orleans and Jackson and the North Pacific Railroad and sent it to Camp Moore, which was about 78 miles north. All their artillery and munitions were sent to fit Vicksburg, and Lovell then sends a message to the War Department in Richmond. Quote, The enemy has passed the forts. It is too late to send any guns here. They had better go to Vicksburg. So military stores, ships, and warehouses are then burned, Anything really that they considered useful to the Union, including all the cotton, were th was thrown into the river. I bet that was quite a sight. Yeah. So, you know, the city's completely vulnerable now. Mm -hmm. And even though it's completely vulnerable, the citizens, along with military and civil authorities, they remain defiant. And at around 1400 on April 25th, Admiral Farragut sends Captain Bailey, who is the 1st Division Commander from the USS Cayuga, to accept the surrender of the city. He came across armed mobs within the city, and they were like, you can go over to the city hall, but this ain't happening. So they were just trying to uh, show how tough they were, try to scare them away. And when they got there, General Lovell did refuse to surrender the city. And the mayor, Mayor Monroe, agreed with him. William B. Mumford, he pulled down a Union flag, which was raised over the former U.S. Mint by Marines of the USS Pensacola. And the mob destroyed it. Ooh. Good old-fashioned flag burning. <laughs> <sighs> they went to go get the surrender of the city, and I just keep thinking of the officials going, what if we say no, and then the plans are ruined? What are they going to do next? And then the mob, you know, does their thing. Uh, yeah, but this is really interesting. If you look up at history at this time, usually a no answer is answered with cannons. Yes, and lots of cannon fire, and lots of destruction. So Farragut gets the word, and he did not go with tradition. Oh. He did not destroy the city. He moved upriver to subdue the fortifications north of the city, and then came back a few days later on April 29th. And then Farragut and about 250 Marines from the USS Hartford, they came in and removed the Louisiana state flag from City Hall. By May 2nd, the U.S. Secretary of State, William H. Seward, declared New Orleans recovered and males are allowed to. So because of Admiral Farragut's, um, oh, what should we say? Breaking of tradition, I think, is 
an appropriate way to, if that's what you're going for. Farragut's cooler head. Uh-huh. Because of Farragut's cooler head, Louisiana was not destroyed like many, many, many other cities during, well, any conflict. So you you guys could thank Farragut for that. Well, I imagine, I'm sure he had the foresight to understand the importance of a functional New Orleans to the Union. Like if he started blasting uh, the ports or, uh, you know, any of the infrastructure involved in trying to get goods from one place to another, that harms them once they have it. So, I don't know. Maybe he was just, uh, his cool head was a result of rational foresight. Oh, those guys didn't care. They had one objective. Take the city. They don't care if it's rubble afterwards. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) So on May 1st of 1862, Major General Benjamin Butler, he brings in 5,000 men and occupies the city. And of course, there's nobody there really to offer resistance, but just a bunch of civilians. So they were like, okay, you know what? You win. You got it. Hey, they, he took down our flag, which means you automatically win, right? Everybody plays capture the flag. That's how it works, right? Indeed. That is exactly how it works. And if he was smart, he would have taken that flag and flushed it down the toilet so it was irrecoverable. Or thrown it in the Mississippi. That's It ends up in the same place, I think. Yeah, that is the toilet in that time. So Butler was one uh, was a former Democratic Party official. He was a lawyer and a state legislator, and he was one of the first major generals of volunteers of the Civil War appointed by Abraham Lincoln. He had gained glory in a Massachusetts state militia and had anticipated the war and carefully prepared six militia regiments for the conflict. That's impressive. Yeah. At the start of the war, he immediately marched to Washington, D.C. to make sure that nobody tried nothing. And even though he didn't have any orders, he occupied and restored order in Baltimore, Maryland. And he was rewarded He was made commander of Fortress Monroe on the Virginia Peninsula, where he gained further political renown as as he was the first guy to practice confiscation of fugitive slaves as contraband of war. This was made or laid a policy of war by Congress. So because of these and other, you know, maneuvers that the... uh, the guy did. He had been chosen to command the army expedition to, to New Orleans. Okay. And, you know, because he really didn't have too much military experience, he just lucked into things a lot. He, a lot of people were happy to see him go. They were like, take <laughs> your bald head and get out of here. <laughs> now, he was one of the most controversial and volatile personalities of the Civil War. That's saying something. Wow. Yeah, he was infamous in New Orleans because of his confrontational proclamations and alleged corruption. Although, I don't know how alleged corruption is in the political circle. And in 
New Orleans in particular. I mean, come on. Uh, New Orleans listeners, uh, that is no personal affront to you. That is just talking about your colorful history. Now, if it is said that if this was all he was capable of, he would never have been able to hold the city, you know, or, you know, prevent the Confederacy from coming back in and recapturing it. The oppression had been actually been created by the Confederate officials and sympathizers that New Orleans and Louisiana were, be held, were being held by a brute military force and through terror. The truth is far more complex and subtle. Butler was, in fact, a political general and was awarded his position by excellent political connections and accomplishments. It was his political expertise that made his position in New Orleans tenable. He had in no way the military force necessary to hold the town by force alone. His command numbered only 15,000 men, and he was never, ever sent reinforcements during the entire time he commanded in Louisiana. Uh, Butler said himself, quote, We are 2,500 men in a city of 150,000 inhabitants, all hostile, bitter, defiant, explosive, standing literally in a magazine, a spark only needed for destruction. His method of preserving order was seen as a radical and totalitarian even in the North and Europe when he issued Butler's General Order Number 28. This was a... Well, I'll just just read it to you. How about that? That sounds good. Uh... Headquarters, Department of the Gulf, New Orleans, May 15th, 1862. As the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women, calling themselves ladies, of New Orleans in return for the most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter, when any female shall by word, gesture, or movement insult or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States. She shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town plying for advocation by command of General Major General Butler. So let me get this straight. If a dude were to insult the guys, that's no big deal. But if a lady yeah. does it, it's a humongous deal? Yep. And uh, at the last part of it, Treated as a woman of the town plying her advocation. That kind of sounds to me like they're going to label them as whores. Yeah. I guess they didn't want to put that in writing, so they said ladies of the town plying their advocation. What the, what, uh, that, that just seems very, I don't know, of all the stuff we've talked about in the battles and trying to preserve life through surrender or uh, using st- strategy to defeat the enemy... All these, you know, you would consider, oh, these are very masculine, manly traits, and then a woman insults them and they can't handle that? That's, I don't know. Yeah. Hence the uh, being seen as radical. 
Yeah, I guess in in the Western tradition, I guess since chivalry, it was oh we're just gonna we're gonna take extra care of the ladies of a place, unless they call me names. Yes, then they're practically prostitutes. Yes. So the U.S. War Department uh, expected Butler to hold Eastern Louisiana, which was the cities of. Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and maintain communications up the river to Vicksburg to support Farragut's forces during the siege of Vicksburg. And also, the city of New Orleans itself was just as undefendable for the Union as it was for the Confederacy. Because, you know, surrounded by all these levees, which is lower than anything else around it, and they were very fragile. And New Orleans was, and still is, extremely vulnerable to flooding, bombardment, and insurrection. Well, those last two, not so much nowadays. But still the flooding. But they were also, they were also generally unhealthy and subject to devastating epidemics. The defense of the city against attacks from Confederate forces pretty much depended on a extensive outer ring of fortifications requiring thousands of troops to garrison the. And because it's a conquered territory, Louisiana had a potential for becoming a serious logistical drain on the Union forces and is a unstable or as a unsustainable front. If the Confederacy was able to bring in a well-organized force, or if the people of Louisiana brought in a resistance movement, yeah, whatever. So it would be pretty much it could be pretty much counted on that the Confederacy would launch a major counteroffensive to take New Orleans, since it is the largest population center of the Confederacy, and because of the huge industrial and shipping resources, which means that its permanent loss would be political, politically intolerable. So, Butler's most valuable asset when he was in command of New Orleans, it was actually not his army, but it was his political heritage. He was a Jacksonian Democrat and a populist and reformer. He had a gift for identifying with the issues of the broadcast levels of the voters. And they turned them to their political advantage. So that means that the Jacksonian political legacy had come full circle in about 47 years now. From defending New Orleans from the British to securing it from succession. So the spoils system created by the Democratic Party was also part of Butler's political heritage. Uh, Butler believed that the advantages of political office should be used to the advantage of friends and supporters and to suppress political opponents. In general, Butler used these political abilities to play the various factions and interests in New Orleans as a conductor would use to inspire his orchestra. So to ensure his control and reward Union supporters while isolating and marginalizing the prostyle pro-Confederate factions. That's what he did. All right. So that so Butler begins a 
putting martial law into effect in Orleans. Uh, he sentenced anyone calling for cheers for Jefferson Davis and Beauregard to three months of hard labor at Fort Jackson. Huh. He issued Order 25, which distributed captured Confederate food supplies and beef and sugar into the city to the poor and starving. The Union blockade and the King Cotton embargo had damaged the economy, leaving a lot of guys without work. So at this time, the value of goods passing through New Orleans had gone from five hundred million to fifty-two million Ooh. in just two years. That's a humongous drop! Wow. Yeah, Butler also raised three more infantry: the first, second, and third Louisiana Native Guards. And the Corps d'Afrique from existing free black militia units, and they were supervised by General Daniel Allman. These black units were also unusual in that they had black officers. That is unusual. That's you don't even in uh, Northern Union deployments, you don't really see that at all. No, you don't. You didn't really use you uh, didn't really see that until. After World War II? Yeah. We really didn't see that until, yeah, until after World War II. Yeah, this is, that's a, I didn't realize, yeah, that's a, that is not where I expected it to happen, nor when I expected it to happen. Perhaps that's the best way to say that. Right. So these served both to add to his forces and to confront the former ruling class of the city with bayonets from their former slaves. Butler also used his commercial contacts in the Northeast and in Washington to receive commerce in the city. They exported 17,000 bales of cotton to the Northeast, which reestablished trade with the North and international trade. Because, guess what? They're part of the Union again. They don't got to worry about blockade. Oh, that's true. Right. He also put to work a lot of people in support of the Union military, and in just cleaning up the city itself. He expanded the city's sewer system and set up and set up pumps to empty the system into the river. And this freed the city from the expected summer yellow fever epidemic, which saved thousands of lives. Yeah, I, w I would imagine. That's uh, Given that it's a summertime recurring thing that is an epidemic, I imagine that is a huge benefit to that city mm -hmm. he also extensively taxed the wealthy to set up social programs for the lower classes the robin hood aspects of his programs provided a broad base of political support and in response to that it, it was an extensive informal intelligence and counter espionage organization which helped provide peace and order only at the cost of uh, freedom of speech. Yeah. So, you know, Butler had already damaged the Confederacy slavery with when he uh, instituted his contraband of war policy back when he was uh, commanding Fort Monroe on the Virginia Peninsula. Mm -hmm. This policy rationalize the retention of slaves fleeing the succeeding states by claiming that the Confederate military was using slave labor for military use and the construction of fortifications and moving military supplies 
constructing roads and railroad grades of use in the Confederate Army. So slaves within the area of Confederate control rapidly spread the word that Union military forces were not enforcing the fugitive slate laws and that slaves could find refuge within Union military lines and employment as laborers for the federal armies. Hmm. So because of this, the use of slaves in the proximity of Union forces became very, very difficult and expensive because the slaves would flee at the very first opportunity they could to Union lines. And this deprived the Confederate armies of their labor and their former masters of what they regarded to as valuable property. And since the Confederate government was counting on slave labor to offset the greater number of Union soldiers, Butler's uh, pretty innovative policy struck the Confederacy a huge strategic blow pretty much destroying an asset that the Confederacy counted on to win the military struggle for independence. When, uh, also, the uh, slaves running to the Union also diverted resources from the Confederate military and its governments in defense and defense of the plantations and the discipline of their labor forces. The planters of Louisiana even tried to appeal for aid from the federal authorities. Quote, Our family has owned Negroes for generations. We have no one but yourself and Janice Shipley and Butler to protect us against these Negroes in a state of insurrection. The uh, plantations of Jefferson Davis, located in Mississippi on the Davis Bend, 20 miles downriver from Vicksburg, there, it was also disrupted by Union invasion. And after his older brother, Joseph, ran away with, you know, some of their slaves, the rest of them revolted, took possession of the property, and told everybody where the location of the Davis's valuables were. Oh, my goodness. And they actually took up arms to to resist any Confederate forces trying to recapture the area. Uh, the slaves in rebellion armed themselves with guns and newspapers and fought to the death any attempts to infringe upon their newbound freedom. And this rebellion within a rebellion began to destroy the Confederate authority inside Louisiana which happened the instant Butler and his troops appeared in New Orleans. I, I imagine, yes. So, you know, we, were talk we talked all about that. Uh, it's a very valuable area, right? Yes. So, of course, the, the Confederacy is going to try to come back. And they did on August 5th in the form of a naval and army assault on Baton Rouge. This was led by Major General John C. Breckinridge. And this was the Battle of Baton Rouge. And, you know, after a hard-fought battle, the Confederate forces were driven out of the city. The, the most significant aspects of this battle was that it did not result in a uprising or widespread, or widespread support for the Confederate forces in Louisiana. 
which means that federal forces are not able to mount a sustainable campaign to retake retake New Orleans or any of the state, really. They couldn't get the people back on their side. They're not going to get any help. Huh. And this is all because of Butler and his political uh, manipulation and broad-based political support. That's really interesting. Just the... This not scheming, that's not the right word, but the kind of the maneuvers that he did and what the effects were. And I, I this is a, I mean, I can see um, a history student doing a, a thesis on this guy. Mm. Oh, I'm sure many, many have. Yeah. Uh, a guy named Chester G. Heron, he summed up his Butler's support. Quote, the huge illiterate majority, the poor classes of blacks and whites, would have starved had Butler not fed and employed them, and thousands may have died had his sanitation policies not cleansed the city of diseases. So Butler did it right. He said, screw the rich. Get the poor on my side, and it's all gravy, baby. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more po- uh, poor generally than rich, and using the Confederate uh, supplies, the food and whatnot, to feed the poor was clever, because not only does he deal a blow to his... Uh, adversary but he also gets the goodwill of the people he's occupying now butler's generally abrasive and heavy-handed actions did how catch up with him um a number of his acts did offend people such as when he seized eight hundred thousand dollars that had been deposited in the office of the dutch consul and his imprisonment of the french champagne magnet charles hide-and-seek but of course general order number 28 you know the calling women that talk back to men yeah you know women of the night that was his most notorious one well i think just kind of understanding the the context of society at that time if you were a lady it was um it was considered absolutely wrong for a man to like uh, if if a lady punches a man in no way would that man be able to punch the lady back because that's just unheard of however this designation that butler is given does de facto give them that right to reciprocity in that way so it's kind of i don't i don't know what the ladies were doing that that got his goat so badly that he would authorize this but it's I'm 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 surprised. Well, yeah, because once a la- woman is labeled as a prostitute during this time, they weren't a lady anymore. Yep, exactly. So, uh, the order pro- provoked protests from both north and from in the north and in the south, and also, you know, over the pond as well. Uh, Britain and France were very very insulted. And many considered it the cause of his removal from command from uh, the Department of the Gulf. He was also nicknamed Beast Butler and Spoons because of his alleged habit of pilfering the silverware of southern homes in which he stayed. He also became so reviled in the city that merchants began selling chamber pots with his likeness at the bottom. Uh, that's the beauty of capitalism right there. 
he executed a guy named William B. Mumford, who had torn down a United States flag placed by Farragut on New the New Orleans Mint. And for this execution, he was denounced by the Confederate President Jefferson Davis in General Order 111 as a felon deserving capital punishment who, if captured, should be reserved for execution. So, Butler's administration, good things, kept the city orderly and healthy. But there's, you know, other things. Yeah. Um, Farragut summed it up saying, quote, They may say what they please about General Butler, but he was the right man in the right place. Ooh, who said that? Farragut. Very good, then. Yeah. So, Major General Nathan Banks gets to New Orleans, December 14th, 1862, to take command of the Department of the Gulf. Butler is not told of this until Banks gets there and tells him himself. That had to be a surprise, I'm sure. <laughs> and they had telegraph, too. I mean, that's not, I don't know. Now, contrary to popular belief, Butler's reign really didn't have anything to do with him getting replaced. It was political considerations in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio that got him replaced. The Democratic victories in Illinois and Ohio had alarmed Lincoln's administration, and a dramatic letter from Governor Oliver P. Morton who was the governor of Indiana, claimed that the states, along with the Ohio, had more in common with the southern states than with New England and would leave the Union if the Mississippi was not reopened to trade. So these new dramas reinforced the idea by Secretary of State William H. Seward that an invasion of Texas would be favorably received by a pro-Union group of German-American cotton farmers who lived there. And the idea was championed by Banks, who was a New England political general eager to send cotton to northeastern mills. So Banks would start the siege of Port Hudson, and when that was successful, he began the Red River Campaign in pursuit of Texan cotton. And, you know, the Red River Expedition would prove a very costly failure and would result in more wanton destruction and looting than even Butler was responsible for. But, you know, we'll get more into that when we get into the Texas uh, area of operations. Yeah, that'll be interesting. There's a lot of uh, stories I've heard just uh, on the note of looting and destruction and just kind of the the i think emotions were super high and then plus war is being what it is just there was a lot of uh rape and raising of cities and a lot of uh things that were pretty terrible oh always so we're gonna get through in and out of the first and second battle of donaldsville real quick to finish us out of the lower seaboard so the first battle took place August 9th, 1862 in Ascension Parish, 
in Louisiana as part of the operations against Baton Rouge. There were a number of different incidents of artillery firing on Union steamers going up and down the Mississippi River at Donaldsonville, Louisiana. And this influenced the U.S. Navy to undertake a retaliatory strike. With, so Rear Admiral Farragut sent the town a notice, a little note of what his intentions were. And he made a very strong suggestion that the citizens send the women and children away. He then anchored in front of the town, brought his guns to bear, and fired. He fired on it with his guns and his mortars. He also sends a detachment of Marines and sailors ashore and starts setting fire to hotels, wharf buildings, and the dwelling houses and other buildings of Captain Felipe Laundry because they thought he was the captain of the partisan unit and that the, he, they were the guys that uh, fired on the landing party during the raid. Uh, you know, some, some citizens, they were like, uh, why, no, stop, please, no, we're protesting. But, uh, you know, they pretty much got their point across for a little while at least. And the uh, firing on the Union ships pretty much ceased. There you go, first battle. Oh, wow, that was very um, to the point. Yes. Uh, second battle started June 28th, 1863. So on the night of June 27th, Green, with a mile and a half to get to go to get to the fort, began moving troops up to attack. The attack started after midnight. This was a nighttime attack. That didn't happen very often. No, not at all. And the Confederates quickly surrounded the fort and began passing through various obstructions. Unfortunately, the troops attacking along the levee came to a ditch. This was not known to them. They hadn't scouted this out before. And they found that it was uh, very wide, that they really couldn't cross it. And this uh, actually, you know, moats work, guys. Oh, yeah. And that's when uh, a Union gunboat, the USS Princess Royal, came up to them and start shelling the attackers. Uh, the Confederacy continued their assaults for a little bit, but eventually they were like, you know what? This ain't working. We got moats. We got boats. We got to get out of here. And so, yeah, that was the second battle. Well, no kidding. But that was uh, before the Princess Royal uh, moved on to retirement and became a, a cruise ship, I imagine. Uh, I'm just kidding. They they rarely transform those kind of Civil War-era gunships to our modern-day cruise ship with swimming pools and whatnot. She sank off of Cape Fear, North Carolina in 1874. There you go. Thank you for... Bringing closure to my uh, imagination, and in with respect to the Princess Royal, right? Uh, so that is going to be that for today. We hey, we, we're done with the lower seaboard. Well, how about that? We're done with the lower seaboard. So next time we are going to the Trans Mississippi Theater of the American Civil War. This is going to include the Arizona and New Mexico Territory. Oh. 
Missouri and Arkansas, Texas, Indian Territory. So this is going to be uh, different. You don't hear much about this in the history books. No, you don't. I'm curious because uh, I guess Indian Territory is what we used to call Oklahoma before it was incorporated yes. as a state. So that's yeah. We'll we'll talk about it then and see. Hopefully, uh, you listeners will join us. Yes. All right. We are teamed up with HeroCards.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels at the end of every episode. Today, we are honoring Lieutenant Morrison R. Brown. His hometown was Swamp Scott, Massachusetts. He received the uh, Navy Cross, Purple Heart. He was stationed on board the USS Bory DD-215. His date of sacrifice was November 2nd, 1944, killed in action in the North Atlantic, north of the Azores. He was 28. So, Morrison Brown and his sister Mary were born on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean and raised in the small coastal town of Swampscott, Massachusetts, 15 miles northwest of Boston on Nahant Bay. After graduating from Swampscott High School, Morrison attended Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, from 1936 to 1939. He studied pre-med and was active in football, swimming, men's glee club, choir, and the Beta Omega Sigma fraternity. He graduated with honors. Brown married Francis Gillian and lived for a time in Miami Beach, Florida. His parents, Carol and Marion Brown, also moved to Miami Beach. Prior to joining the service, Morrison was briefly employed by an advertising firm in Miami Beach. Brown joined the United States Navy and served as a apprentice seaman in 1940. He was commissioned as an ensign in 1941 in New York City and rose to the rank of lieutenant by the time he was assigned to the USS Bory DD-215 as chief engineering officer. According to the Naval History and Heritage Command, Bory served as the inshore patrol 15th Naval District in Panama Bay, and later on patrol and escort in the Caribbean. This destroyer departed the Caribbean June 26, 1943, and on July 30th put to sea as a member of the Hunter-Killer Group, built around escort carrier USS Card CVE-11, or CVE-11. Retrofitted and transported from a standard destroyer to a submarine killer, the Boris crew was made up mostly of naval reservists who had been serving together for three years. Bory was part of Captain Albert J. Isbell's task group 21.14 and on a mission to find German U-boat submarines in the North Atlantic. In the early morning hours of November 1st, 1943, Bory was north of the Azores Islands. The very large wolf pack Siegfried with 18 German U-boats was operating in the area, disrupting North Atlantic convoys of troops and supplies. On November 31, 1943, Bory gained radar contact with a U-boat on the surface. When the sub dove, Bory laid down three patterns of depth charges, disabling the sub. The next day, November 1, 1943, Bory's radar discovered another German submarine on the surface. U-405 submerged and Bory gave chase, again launching a depth charge attack. According to Naval Heritage and History Command, quote, a mechanical malfunction on Bory caused every depth charge on the stern racks to go into the water at once. 
resulting in a massive explosion that lifted Bori's stern out of the water. Whoa. The huge explosion also apparently damaged U-405, because she came to the surface and didn't try to submerge again. So now the German U-boat is on the surface. U-405 and Bori exchange gunfire. Taking, torpe uh, taking topside damage, U-405 attempted to outmaneuver the American destroyer. Concerned that the U-boat would escape, Bori's captain, Lieutenant Charles Hutchins, gave the order to ram them. The sub turned and, timed with a large wave, the Bori rode up onto the deck of U-405 from behind at a 20 to 30 degree angle. U-405 managed to free itself, and an intense surface battle ended with the sub sinking and exploding underwater. Bori's forward engine room was flooded and salt water had contaminated the ship's fuel and water supply for the boilers. After losing the generators and electrical power, Hutchins gave the order to scuttle the ship. The USS Gulf and the USS Barney arrived to rescue survivors. Amazingly, Bori's crew suffered no serious casualties during the, its intense battle with U-405. But the rescue was difficult and heavy rains with 40-foot swells in frigid water. The rolling pitching of the Bori and its rescue ships resulted in the loss of 27 men. Reports of Lieutenant Brown's efforts to keep Bori in the fight would later earn him the Navy Cross. His citation reads, The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross posthumously to Lieutenant Morrison Ropes Brown, Naval Serial Number 0-TAC-101070, United States Naval Reserve, for extraordinary heroism and distinguished service in the line of his profession of en as engineering officer aboard the destroyer USS Bori, DD-215. When that vessel attacked and sank in enemy submarines in the waters of the Caribbean Sea on the morning of 1 November 1943, to keep the engines of the Bori operative in order to complete her mission, despite serious damage sustained during the prolonged battle, Lieutenant Brown remained steadfastly at his post. Buffeted by debris in the heavy rolling of the vessel, and with water pouring into the forward engine room, as the flooding increased and the compartment became untenable, he calmly ordered his men to safety while he stayed below, standing neck deep in water at the throttle until the Bori had completely destroyed the submarine. The conduct the conduct of Lieutenant Brown throughout his action reflects great credit upon himself and in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. According to the Naval History and Heritage Command, quote, the action actually didn't take place anywhere near the Caribbean Sea. So this was either operational security or a fat finger in transcribing the citation somewhere along the line. Lieutenant Morrison R. Brown was lost at sea and declared missing in action. His name is inscribed on the tablets of the missing of the North Africa American Cemetery in Carthage, Tusenia. So, Lieutenant Morrison R. Brown, thank you. Thank you. So, Christoph, how would you take us out? All right, uh, we'll do, Dale. Uh, so, listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. I hope you enjoyed... Uh, what we had to talk about today with the uh, the the lower seaboard in the Civil War. Uh, if you want to contact us and tell us how much you liked it, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, you could also tweet at us, and you can find us at usnhistorypod. So go ahead and throw some tweets down 
And if you want to be even more interactive, you can join the Discord, and you can find the link to that in the show notes. Dale? And always rate and subscribe if you can. That will help us immensely. Oh, and you can find us on YouTube as well. So feel free to check us out there. Yes. And with that, guys, we're going to wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye, everybody. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank you.